as we say uh, in the military, you don't blow a bridge until you got another one to cross. And we are in uncharted constitutional and I think very dangerous territory. The security of the nation and the world are back on center stage. From wars over national sovereignty to a modern day battle over the right to survive. Florida Congressman Michael Waltz knows what it's like to be there, literally, as a highly decorated Army Special Forces veteran with tours of combat duty across three continents and as a Pentagon advisor to two United States Secretaries of Defense. Today, Waltz is working to secure the nation against threats from China, Russia, and worldwide terrorism. Given his experience, he's right out of central casting. From Ballard Studios in Washington, D.C., it's 13th and Park. We give you information, not a panic attack. I mean, look what's going on. I mean, my God. This was it. The kids were gonna die. That time is gone forever. This is the biggest story in America. We weren't prepared for this. Don't you want to speak truth to power? Toughest thing I ever had to do. Well, Congressman, great to have you with us. I know it's been a busy week. There's been a few things on your plate this week. Not much going on in D.C. Not days. much going on. But I have to start here. Sure. So you were the first Green Beret elected to Congress. Thank you for your service. Four Bronze Stars, you know, three tours of duty on across three continents. You marry this wonderful person who also is a Bronze Star recipient, worked in Homeland Security. She was also the State Department's hostage negotiator, so... So you're in a trouble husband, there. A husband rarely wins an argument. I absolutely never win. Well, see, that's where I'm going because I figured you you were together on naming your youngest army, which I think is great. A R M I E, by the way, right. for the audience. But when you're around the dinner table, so to speak, and you don't see eye to eye on something, if that in fact ever happens, who wins that argument? Oh, well, she is clearly outranks me at, <laughs> at, at at every level, and I salute and say yes, honey, and. <laughs> And move out. But uh, I have to say, Go Army has a whole new meaning in, in our household. And, you know, Army's got to eat. Army's got to nap. Army-sized poop. You know, as you roll into 50, having a 19-month-old <laughs> keeps you, they say it keeps you young. At three in the morning, it doesn't feel that way sometimes. Well, you know, the world is in turmoil right now because yeah. of what's going on in the Middle East with Israel the horrible, savage attack by Hamas, and now the expected response. You once wrote that it's easy to bomb a tank, but difficult to defeat an idea. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what's in play here. Yeah. And, you know, I also have said repeatedly the terrorists didn't get Biden's memo that he decided the war on terror was over. Right. And this really, truly, in my heart of hearts, I believe, started with this disgraceful, despicable withdrawal from Afghanistan. It is fundamentally un-American to abandon fellow Americans, to leave them behind, and to leave behind allies that have fought and stood with us for the same values that that flag stands for. But that's what we did. Our enemies around the world took notice. They smell weakness in this White House. And uh, it should surprise no one that Russia, terrorism, China, Iran are all on the march right now. And uh, I, I look, I think a lot of folks, frankly, in the United States, we enjoy so many benefits and freedoms. Mm. It's easy to take them for granted. I hope this is a real wake up call to what a world looks like without American leadership. Uh, America has to lead or bad things fill the void. Well, you had the unusual life 
story of being on both the policy side and the execution side of military policy. Yeah. How did you square the two? Two lives. You no, know, it was a it was a, a fascinating experience. A lot of folks don't realize that both the Navy SEALs and Army Green Berets have reserve units. Mm. Jump, shoot, be ready to go on the weekends, but it means you got to have day jobs. Yeah. Uh, my day job just happened to be writing the strategy on the war on terror for Secretary Rumsfeld and Secretary Gates, and eventually in the Bush White House. And in between, I had to be the only idiot in Washington that would write the strategy, brief it, get approved by the president. Then we get mobilized to have to go implement it. You better make sure it's right because it was it was my rear end on the line. And then the fascinating part would be taking the uniform off, coming back into the White House and saying, hey, boss, uh, the Pentagon's full of it. Let me tell you what's really going on out on the ground. But bringing that truth to power, right. speaking that truth to power broke all kinds of China. But that's what we owe those men and women that are out on the wall. Well, you wrote that book, Warrior Diplomat. And in that book, you talk a lot about how mistakes were made. Yeah. You know, the mistakes between maybe well-intended policy that didn't work or policy that was good policy, but when brought into the stage of execution, that didn't work. That must have been frustrating enough. But then when you saw the withdrawal from Afghanistan, what I have to say is a disgraceful Mm-hmm. withdrawal. Mm-hmm. That must have really bothered you. Yeah, look, you can, and, and it's a healthy debate. Do we leave a small presence there? Do we keep a lid on terrorism? Do we just get completely out? I point out to people, we still have today, almost 80 years after World War II, 50,000 troops in Japan, 30,000 troops in South Korea. We've had special operations forces in Colombia for many decades. So really, it's a debate about American leadership and what our presence and role around the world should be. But what is indisputable is how that withdrawal was done, was asinine, uh, wasn't well thought out. You don't pull your military assets out while leaving civilians and allies that you know are going to be hunted down and brutalized. Uh, So it was it was truly how it was done. And the fact that Biden ignored the military advice of multiple four star generals Mm -hmm. and forced this thing to be done on a timeline that made no sense. And we are where we are now, where uh, we got the wrong people out. The people that we left behind are being hunted down as we speak. And the thing that pisses me off and should anger every American is Obama did this in Iraq in 2011, yanked us out with no plan. What happened? The explosion of ISIS on the scene, thousands of dead, attacks all over Europe and the United States. And our military had to go back to clean it up. But going back into Afghanistan is going to be far worse because we don't have the bases. We don't have the government. We don't have local allies. And uh, we've seen now with Hamas and the attack on Israel, back to your point about you can't bomb an idea, that this is a clash of ideologies. This is an epic clash of civilizations. Right. And it is going to take a very long war and both soft power and hard power to win this thing. And people ask me, what does victory look like? To me, victory looks like women marching in Tehran and in wow. Gaza and, it, you know, and in, in really that our values right. that the flag stands for has won. And just final thing, because this is, this is really getting under my skin. When you have a progressive left that fundamentally in its core believes America is not a force for good, uh, that does not believe we are exceptional in this in this 
difficult, dangerous world. Yeah. That at our core, we are uh, racist, misogynist, and colonialist versus not, not imperfect and needs to get better, but not a force for good, a force for bad. That's a huge, huge problem. Well, we're seeing everything play out in Plainfield. Yeah. So we saw the tragedy of the hospital, that Al-Ali hospital in Gaza that was bombed, and everyone was looking on in horror. The first thing that, that happened, of course, was the blame game. And it was, the fingers first pointed at Israel. Then evidence is now serviced that, no, it was the Islamic Jihad. The Islamic Jihad is blaming both Hamas and Israel. Everyone's blaming everybody. But we're going to see this play out almost right. in real time, Congressman. That's a different kind of experience than I can tell you. I go back to the Vietnam era when it wasn't. You, know, you saw some clips at night, but it wasn't real time. This is happening as we see it. Today, President Biden was here in Israel, standing with its people in the face of tragedy, while across the Arab world, anger raged. Protests from the Mideast to Europe, some aimed at the U.S. over the deadly explosion at a Gaza hospital that Palestinian health authorities say killed hundreds and claimed Israel is the culprit. President Biden, however, coming to Israel's defense, saying he was deeply saddened and outraged by the explosion before declaring it appears as though it was done by the other team, blaming the explosion on a failed rocket launched by terror group Islamic Jihad. Is that going to affect our appetite to do what we need is necessary to really belly up to the bar and get this to work the way it has to? Unfortunately, I fear it will. That's right out of the terrorist playbook. Yeah. I personally have been fired upon by terrorists from inside schools, inside mosques, inside hospitals. They want us to hit back. They win from their perspective either way. Either we hold back and mm -hmm. don't hit them and keep eating it, so mm -hmm. to speak, and taking casualties, or we do hit back. We call civilian casualties. They have their propaganda win. My point is the act itself of firing from within a school is a war crime. Number one. Number two, this wasn't just a oops shoulder shrug from the media that just ran with this propaganda in the Gaza hospital right. explosion. This caused riots all over the Middle East. Our embassies were being stormed. There was right. blood in the streets. This isn't just a, oh, we made a mistake correction on the back page. And my question to so many journalists has been, you know, if this was Putin and the Russians— mm -hmm alleging that Ukraine bombed a Russian hospital, you would have paused and gotten the fact. Right. You wouldn't have just taken that at face value. Right. But in this case, they automatically ran with it. And I think it's the media, the UN, uh, the Europeans and and members of Congress showing their true colors and showing their baked in biases. What's the right role for America here? I mean, as a world leader, sure. not just in the Middle East, by the sure. way. You know, we have the Ukraine situation where it's all about national sovereignty and the Russians without invitation go in and invade. We have Iran still rattling the you know, nuclear saber at us in the world, yeah. saying at any moment we might go. And then you have China. And China, I think, is our biggest adversary now because of their gathering economic and military strength. And you've been very outspoken mm -hmm. about the China. We'll call it the China threat. You can see over the past six months, roughly, some of what we've dealt with when it comes to Chinese aggression. Of course, you remember the story of the Chinese spy balloon. Less than a month ago, Chinese fighters jets swerved very closely to an Air Force plane. A few days later, a warship nearly hit a U.S. destroyer in the Taiwan Strait. And then on June 10th, the administration confirms what we just said, that China is upgrading its spy facilities.
Well, let me just answer your first question and what is our role here as it pertains to this this conflict. Number one, to support Israel and support Israel for the long haul. And for those that are saying, you know, are putting kind of support for Ukraine and Israel on the same plane, there is a whole series of statutes. It's in law for our support for Israel. It's in law. It's called Qualified Military Edge, QME, mm-hmm. that we are required to make sure they have the edge over their adversaries. And not to mention the Jewish American history, right. uh, the ties of our two nations. So one is support Israel, but really where we could be having a difference right now is this administration has to do a 180 on its Iran policy. We are literally indirectly funding Iran's funding of terrorism in Israel. And it's not just the $6 billion for hostages. Which everyone likes to. That is absolutely right. fungible. I don't care how you want to spend it. But it really has been turning a blind eye the last two years on enforcing the oil sanctions that's allowed them to go from basically nothing by the end of the maximum pressure campaign to nearly $30 billion a year, not to mention IMF loans and all kinds of other access right. to cash that's flowing right through Tehran into these terrorist groups. So I think that is absolutely our role there for the long time, immediate support for Israel, but a shift in shutting off the coffers from Iran. What I watched under maximum pressure time and time again was Hezbollah, Hamas, the other militias all complaining they were out of money. Right. They weren't getting the bags of cash from Tehran because Tehran was out of money. Right. That's what we have to get back to on China. Look, there are two things that could change the way our children and grandchildren live, fundamentally change the way Americans wake up in the morning and live their lives. Mm-hmm. One is the progressive socialist garbage that's being taught in our school systems, uh, and that is incrementally eating away at our freedoms and incrementally eating away at individual responsibility and how people work and live uh, in this country. But the second one is Xi Jinping, is the leader of the Chinese Communist Party. He is openly talking about American democracy on the decline, replacing us as a world power, replacing it with their techno-surveillance state, Mm -hmm. socialism with Chinese characteristics. And the issue that I don't think people fully realize is they've developed a bigger Navy, a larger space force, nearly as good of an air force, the largest army in the world, and more importantly, they control supply chains that could shut our economy off tomorrow. They control pharmaceuticals, they control lithium and other rare minerals, mm-hmm. and, and if they take Taiwan, 90% of the world's most advanced computer chips. If we're going to mobilize the American people to say, when you see Made in China, put it down, to pull our supply chains back, to arm our allies, and to fully fund our military, we have to, you know, we, we can't keep describing the world we want to live in. If it reads made in China, put it down. So people ask me all the time, like, oh, my God, you know, after I make them want to drink a lot of bourbon right. every time. And my wife is like, <laughs> you've got to quit petrifying people. But people need a wake up call. Yeah. Made in America is not just a union issue or jobs issue or economic issue. It's a national security issue. Yeah. Historians are going to look back and say, you guys did what Mark said you were going to do, which was, you know, the capitalists will yeah. sell us the rope we use to hang them. They're doing their major military buildup on our money, uh, whether it is our massive trade deficit, whether it's through, you know, you name the superstore that's buying all the cheap goods, but also through Wall Street, academia, Hollywood, 
all of them. So I ask everybody, when you see made in China, put it down. I would prefer made in America, but you know what? If it says made in Australia, that's okay too. But some of these decisions are tough, right? You talked about AI. It's hard. And you said there's a kind of a trade-off with AI. On the one hand, we need to tap the brakes because this technology run amok could really be devastating on all sorts of fronts. But on the other hand, if we tap the brakes, that's the right. Chinese are going to continue to hit the gas pedal. Yeah, that's right. And look, I think there are some real dangers with AI. I think there are some tremendous upsides that we don't even realize, particularly in the medical and biotech fields. But my point to Elon Musk and others when we've talked about this is we're not making this decision in a vacuum. Our greatest adversary is in an arms race, an AI arms race with it, both AI and quantum computing. And if they win, we're screwed. So I will take imperfect or perhaps a little you know, squirrely Western American developed AI over Chinese all day long because they will take the humans out of the loop. They have no problem with ethics on AI, especially as it pertains to warfare. And when you're talking about things that can literally run laps around us, whether it's fighter jets or missiles, they have no issue with it. We have to win and we have to pour everything we have into this race. And you know how China plans, we plan in three-month quarters, they plan in 25-year plans, right? Or 100-year, if or you read the years. book, 100-year marathon. Right, yeah. and, they, and they actually, they plan it, and then they work the plan, right? That is their advantage to a centralized government. Now, they have their issues. They are uh, brutally oppressing uh, about 10% of their non-ethnic Han Chinese popular, whether it's Tibetans, the Uyghurs, or others. That's about 300 million people. They are tearing down whole cities that they built and no one wants to move to. Uh, they have huge debt issues. They have a demographics and an aging problem issue from their one-child policy. The, the question is, though, will that cause Xi to slow down his aggression, or will he take you know a page right out of the dictator playbook and speed it up to distract his population from their issues. Uh, we have to be ready. And my job on armed services, chairman of military readiness, is to keep pushing the Pentagon hard to make sure they are. Isn't this where your experience really comes into play? Yeah, it is. I don't think you're going to find many members that have worked inside the Pentagon, worked inside the White House, fought in combat, commanded at every level, and, and now are sitting at this seat. And look, I mean, I focus on all kinds of other issues, environmental issues, space issues, housing issues, and certainly education, which I think is the crux of all of it. But I also believe, as a, what I call a small government conservative, the number one job of the federal government is to protect our borders and keep us safe abroad. Almost everything else, I want to keep Washington out of it and push it down to great states like Florida that I think are proving to be a real model for how conservative governance can work, can thrive, and can be a place that everybody wants to move to. The last question, Congressman, it's the elephant in the room. So obviously Washington's been consumed with who is it going to be in the speaker's race? Uh, it looks like right now, still no determination. You were interviewed and gave your views on the need to project not weakness, but strength. Let's play that clip and then get your final comment. Right now, we have multiple aircraft carriers, we have special operations, we have a sacred obligation to those troops that are out on the line right now. We have our greatest ally in the Middle East that truly could get annihilated by some of the most brutal, evil people 
in the world. And my consistent point here is any differences we have in this room may seem big in the room, but in the context of China on the march, Russia on the march, terrorism on the march, because they smell weakness in Washington, those differences are infinitesimal. We need to get over it, get our heads out of our rear end, as we say in the Army, uh, and get back to work because we have a sacred obligation to them. What people see as confusion or chaos, could it actually possibly lead to a Congress that's committed even more to real reform, which is, I think, why you ran for office and so many other of your colleagues? Yeah, it, look, I mean, we, we went through a tough time in January with the with the Speaker's vote, but then we were talking about process and policy and, frankly, things that I think we needed to clean up from how Nancy Pelosi ran the House. And we ended up in a much better place, even though it was painful. Now my concern is we're talking about hurt feelings, old grudges, you know, things that are surfacing from years ago. And I just don't think that is worthy of the moment. And this war for me changes things. This war takes things to a whole different level. Uh, and and I'll keep saying, and there is no difference in any Republican in the room that that even comes close to the differences we have with the progressive left. We are the only thing in Washington that can be a check on this administration from border to energy to crime, but that will also push them on things like Iran and, and China. And so we, we just have to put this in perspective. I've told every one of my colleagues, I get it. He did this. I'm mad she did that. This isn't fair. We shouldn't be rewarding bad behavior. We have to get past it. But we also have to remember how we got here. And the eight who did this, who set us down this course, clearly did not have a plan. As we say uh, in the military, you don't blow a bridge until you got another one to cross. And we are in unchartered constitutional and I think very dangerous territory. In speakers' races in the past, we, you ran your race, you did it behind closed doors, you made your case, and whoever a majority of the majority agreed upon, everybody else got in line and got behind that, that conservative Republican. That's what has started completely falling apart. That's the only way back in my view. I really appreciate you taking time out from the scrum. Yeah. Thank you again for your service and go Army. <laughs> Go Army with an I-E and with a Y. With both. Yeah. All right. Nice Thanks to see so you. Much. Thanks for being Appreciate with us. It. Remember to subscribe today and hit the bell so you never miss another episode of the show with that trademark opener from Washington, D.C. It's 13th and Park. Park.